Sergeant Ronald Meerkamp arrived home after a long day on an investigation, and he was looking forward to cracking open a beer and sitting down to a quiet evening. When he arrived at home, he found this, a letter from his wife, taped to the door. He takes it down. Then, he says, I'll just go grab a beer, have a seat, and see what old Viv wants to let me know. He cracks open his beer, sits back, comfortable recliner, he takes a sip, and this is what he reads. Dear Ron, I wish I didn't have to do this by letter, but I think it's the best way. At least it's not an email or a text, so that's something. I don't feel like I can hold your attention in person long enough to get these points across. In a letter, you can take this all at your own pace. All right, Viv, something's up. I can tell. What you got on your mind, lay it out there. Whenever I try to bring up what the difficulties in our marriage are, you always ask what you've done wrong. I can't seem to convince you that it's not what you do, it's what you don't do. It's the conversations we don't have, the laughter we don't share, the time we don't spend together, the intimacy we don't give to or receive from each other, the marriage therapy sessions you never get around to getting into your schedule, the moments we might have spent together that you slept through. All right, here we go again with the litany of complaints about what I didn't do, about how I'm not enough of a husband for you. Viv, you're in another rough patch in our marriage. Okay. It's like you're missing an action, like you're a ghost in my life. I don't think you see me. I don't think you hear me. I don't think you know me. I don't think you understand me. And I don't think I see, hear, know, or understand you either. I know you don't hate me, and I don't hate you. If you hated me, at least I'd be on your radar. I think my existence is just so faint in your world. I'm vapor, mist in your mind, and worse, to not have a place in your heart, to mean nothing to you. And there are the old wounds, too. I don't need to rehash the old wounds. We both know what they are. Okay. Mental note to self. I've got to make some time for Viv. Maybe a weekend getaway. Well, maybe not a whole weekend. Just a really nice dinner and an overnight at the Sybaris. Jeff recommended it as a romantic getaway place. She'd like that. I can make that happen. And yes, my anger, my hurt, my acting out, my criticism of you, all that has contributed to your distance. Nice to see that you're owning some of your own issues, Viv, just a little anyway. But you are so far away, and I don't know how to bring you back. I've tried. It's like we're not even married. I'm not sure we ever were. You're passionate about your career and sports and deer season with your hunting buddies and your beer when you get home. You're probably drinking a beer right now. Well, as a matter of fact, Viv, I am drinking a beer right now. And you know what? It isn't a crime. You want the promotion from sergeant to lieutenant. You want justice for the victims in your cases. I know being police is stressful for you, but that's hard too. It's hard to know you are wrapped up in cases, and I know you see a lot of bad things coming down the vice squad. I hate that you're on vice, and I hate the hours you have to keep and the risks you have to take and the people you have to deal with. Okay, here you are again, Viv, complaining about me being police again. Viv, I was police when you met me. You knew I was police when you married me. That hasn't changed in 28 years. I've been police the whole time. Let me state this plainly and directly. I want a divorce. That's where I am. It's time. 
This isn't a spontaneous decision. It's been time for a long time. What the hell is Viv talking about? Divorce, Vivian? Come on. Okay, we're in a really rough patch. It happens. We've been in a rough patch before. We'll get through this one too. Definitely a good dinner and a getaway. I've hired Nick Grody as my attorney, but not because I want to battle with you. With Sarah being 18, there aren't any custody issues, but we'll have to divide our assets. And with your pension and the investments in the real estate, that's going to be tricky and we'll need some help. Sheila has agreed to help us with the accounting. She's experienced with that kind of thing, and she's done our taxes well over the last few years. I've discussed our situation with Father Pat, and I think we have grounds for an annulment. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, hey, hold up here, Viv. What are you saying? You've told Nick and Sheila that you want to divorce me? Nick and Sheila are our friends. Viv, you're airing our marriage issues like this, showing our dirty laundry to Nick and Sheila and to Father Pat? Annulment? What are you talking about? I hope we can go through the divorce process amicably, Ron. Not fighting, not bickering, just being calm and civil about it. Amicable divorce is what Nick called it. I've rented an apartment not far from here. I'm not coming back. I'm gone. It's too late. She has never been like this. Can she be serious? She's not serious. Viv, you are not saying this to me. You are not doing this to me. You are not leaving me. This is not happening. We've been together for 28 years. We've made it through a lot of tough times. Lots of tough times. We raised four kids. We made it through your cancer. Your parents dying. This is not happening. You cannot leave me. You are not leaving me. Sarah has gone off to college and all our kids are adults. Sarah, Mike, Tim, and Laura all can handle the changes that will inevitably come. I really hope we can work together and be peaceful apart. I really hope so. There's one more thing I want to tell you myself. Being a detective, you'd eventually find out anyway. I'm not young, but I'm not old either. I'm 52. I have 25 or 30 years of life ahead of me. I'm not going to lose those years, too, like I've lost the last 25 years. I'm moving on, Ron. I'll confess, there is a man. You know him, your old classmate, Quentin Romulo. Quentin Romulo? Nothing has happened between us, yet. We've only talked a few times. But now I have a sense of being seen, heard known, understood, of being a woman. Can you understand that, Ron? Quentin Romulo. Squinty. You're hooking up with Squinty? Okay, Squinty, my old classmate, my old dear friend. It's you and me now. You want to tamper with my wife, Squinty? You really want to take that on? It's going to be consequences for you, Squinty. You want to sow oats in your neighbor's field? I want you to know it hasn't all been bad. There's been good and bad mixed together for the last 28 years. I've tried to love you, Ron, but my love wasn't enough. I'm sorry for that. I'm moving on, Ron. I wish you the best. I wish you could know how my heart grieves over this. Please, let's just raise our hands, surrender to the reality of our defeat, and part as friends. I can do that. I hope you can. Viv. She means it. (sighs) She's gone. She really is gone. She's really gone this time. Nick, the accountant, Father Pat, Squinty. (laughs) Squinty. Oh, man. She's gone. This is it. It's over. And there is not a single thing I can do about it.
We are together in this great adventure, this podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. We are journeying together, and I am honored to be able to spend this time with you. I'm Dr. Peter Melanowski, clinical psychologist and passionate Catholic, and together we are taking on the tough topics that matter to you. We bring the best of psychology and human formation, and we harmonize it with the perennial truths of the Catholic faith. Interior Integration for Catholics is part of our broader outreach, Souls and Hearts, bringing the best of psychology grounded in a Catholic worldview to you and to the rest of the English-speaking world through our website, soulsandhearts.com. Today's episode, number 82, is entitled, The Many Faces of Grief Inside Us, and it's released on August 23rd, 2021. You heard in the lead-in a reenacted story about Ronald and Vivian Meerkamp. This is all made up, right? But I'll be using that clip throughout today's episode to add depth, to add examples, to add color to the concepts that we'll be discussing. Now, in the last episode, episode 81, we broached the topic of grief. And why should we learn about grief? Well, because if we love, we're going to grieve. The only cure for grief is to grieve. And if we flee from grief, we're also going to flee from love. You can't love without eventually grieving. So in the last episode, I mentioned how our understanding of grief can be compromised. It can be limited by assuming that we have just a single, homogenous, monolithic personality. Today, I'm going to share with you a much deeper and richer way, a much more multidimensional way of understanding grief. Now, for episode 72 of this podcast, which was called What Keeps You From Loving, Is It Really Only Your Vices?, we discussed the dimensions of understanding others and ourselves. And we're going to get into that more today. We can understand other people and ourselves from a perspective of zero dimensions, one dimension, two, three, four, five, six dimensions. We're going to go through those pretty quickly now. Zero dimensions, right? Well, if there is a single point in a Euclidean space, in geometry, there is, by definition, no dimensionality. Basically, when you understand somebody else in zero dimensions, you don't understand them at all. You actually don't even acknowledge their existence. They are nothing to you. There's no separate identity. The person isn't even human. The person's invisible. The person doesn't exist for you, right? And so that's characterized by a sense of uncaring, by a sense of apathy, by a sense of distance, by a sense of just being disconnected. So a quote from Helen Keller, she said, quote, science may have found a cure for most evil, but it has not found a remedy for the worst of them all, the apathy of human beings, end quote. When we aren't invested, when we don't care, the other person shrinks down to a single point in space, no dimensions. And Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft in his book, Prayer for Beginners, had this really important quote for us. Begin quote, indifference is more truly the opposite of love than hate is. For we can both love and hate the same person at the same time, but we cannot both love and be indifferent to the same person at the same time. End quote. What about understanding somebody from one dimension? 
Now, if you're looking at one dimension from a geometric perspective, you're looking at a line. A line exists in one dimension. And when we understand somebody in terms of one dimension, in terms of a line, or if we understand ourselves in terms of one dimension, a line, there's only one quality that we're focused in on. And that's often a functional dimension. Is the person meeting my needs or not meeting my needs? It's often very functional. And that was really captured in this poem by Alice Walker, who said, quote, that politicians who smiled at us and kissed our babies, blue eyes shining with triumph, well knew we were falling into our graves, kicked by them as they counted our votes, end quote. And it was this really great quote from John Lubbock in The Beauties of Nature and the Wonders of the World We Live In. He said this, which really captures that one dimension when we're looking at things from one dimension. He said, begin quote, what we do see depends mainly on what we look for. In the same field, the farmer will notice the crop, the geologists, the fossils, the botanists, the flowers, the artists, the coloring, the sportsmen, the cover for the game. Though we may all look at the same things, it does not all follow that we should see them, end quote. And in our example, Vivian, in her pain and loneliness, part of her takes over and reduces Ron to one dimension. Ron is cold, distant. He ignores me. Just one dimension. In order to protect herself from him, at certain points in that letter, she limits him to one dimension, that you don't see me. And for Ron, when he's blended with his angry part, who is protecting him from the agonizing pain of abandonment, Vivian is just a betrayer. She betrayed me. She's a traitor. She's a backstabber. She hurts me. That's the one dimension that at certain points in that exchange, he sees Vivian as. He's blended with a part that, that is focused on protecting him. And in order to do that, reduces Vivian down to the one dimension of she hurt me. This is very personalized, often very self-referential when we look at individuals in one dimension. Now, when we get to two dimensions, we have a plane. And this is where it starts to be less self-referential, often less personal. A two-dimensional image of another person is kind of seeing them like a cardboard cutout. The person has a shape, but is not well understood. So Vivian might understand Ron like this. Ron ignores me and he's self-absorbed, but it's because of his job. Ron shuts down his emotions because of what he sees as a detective on the vice squad. And she might have like been able to benefit from a quote she read in Jeff Lindsay's book, Dexter is Delicious. And in that book, Jeff Lindsay writes this, begin quote, It is a well-worn truth that cops grow callous a cliche so tattered that it is even common on television. All cops face things every day that are so gruesome, brutal, and bizarre that no normal human being could deal with them on a daily basis and stay sane. And so they learn not to feel, to grow and maintain a poker-faced whimsy toward all the surprising things their fellow humans find to do to each other. All cops practice not feeling, and it may be that Miami cops are better at it than others, since they have so many opportunities to learn, end quote. Right, so Vivian can understand when she's looking at Ron through two dimensions 
that he ignores her and he's self-absorbed, but that also he may shut down emotions because of the terrible things that he would feel if he allowed himself greater access to what parts of him were carrying, parts of him saw on the job, parts of him experienced in his day-to-day work. Ron, if he wants to look at Vivian in two dimensions, could see Vivian in these moments as a betrayer and a traitor, but he also might think she's misguided. She's reacting out of emotion. She's reacting out of not really understanding me. She's reacting out of bad advice given to her by her friends or Father Pat. Okay, so... So there you're starting to get this greater dimensionality. It still hasn't got a lot of depth to it. It doesn't have a lot of nuance to it, but it's a little less self-referential when we're looking at people in two dimensions. At least it's more than just the one single thing. Well, let's go on to three dimensions. When we're looking at people in three dimensions, what do we see? Right Now we're starting to take in much more of the person, providing a more complete snapshot of a person in a moment of time. If we're in three dimensions, we have length, width, and height in Euclidean geometry. And so we realize that a person has a whole separate internal world with many dimensions, many competing values at one time. A person may have different kinds of needs, emotions, different beliefs, different thoughts, intentions, desires, attitudes, impulses, different positions in relationship, maybe even multiple points of view at the same time with conflicts and polarizations inside, Right. And so if Ron were to start looking at Vivian in three dimensions in a moment like this, he could say, well, Vivian is betraying me and she's harming me and she's misguided and she's reacting out of ignorance and emotion and bad advice, but she also really loves our kids and she's really good at her job and she was really good to her parents when they were dying, right? And that Vivian has mixed reactions to me. He could again, he could begin to appreciate some of the more positive things that Vivian said in her letter rather than simply reacting in such an intense way in the various parts that took him over in his response to that letter. Well, what if we're looking at somebody in fourth dimensions? What's the fourth dimension? Well, now we're out of basic geometry. Euclidean geometry will not handle the fourth dimension, and we've gotten into physics. The fourth dimension that physics assesses is an object's position in time. And so there's an analogy here. When we're looking at somebody in four dimensions, we're considering the temporal dimension, the dimension of time. We understand that there's a dynamism, that people change over time. People change from moment to moment. What's happening inside varies from one moment to the next. So we understand that people change from moment to moment, but we also understand, we realize that each person has an experiential history. That history informs how he or she has come to be in the present moment. So these experiences of the past are really formative. And so if Ron were somehow to be able to get to appreciating and understanding Vivian in four dimensions, he would understand that Vivian reacts to him differently across time. At different moments in time, she can react to him in different ways. The future might not look exactly as it seems to look right now. And Vivian might be able to get beyond 
just the three-dimensional appreciation of Ron to something like, Ron ignores me and he's self-absorbed because of his job. He has chosen his job over me. He may be afraid he's too damaged to do any other kind of work. He might feel like he's locked into the police department. So that fourth dimension is how do we understand ourselves? How do we understand others over time? Now, this brings us to the fifth dimension. All right, now this dimension is unseen by humans. It's not something that's observable to the naked eye or to our senses, but it's where the forces of gravity and electromagnetism unite in an elegant and powerful theory of the fundamental forces. And I like to think of this as a shift from black and white vision to color vision, like that moment in The Wizard of Oz, you know, where the color comes up right? And then we begin to understand the other person in terms of self and parts, in terms of unity and multiplicity. Part of Vivian is miserable. Part of her believes there is no solution to end except ending the relationship, but parts of her may want to stay. Parts of her may want to still try to work it out. Why is it important to try to get to this fifth dimension of understanding? Not just one dimension, not just two dimensions, not just three dimensions, not just four dimensions. Why is it important to get to this fifth dimension, this shift from black and white to color, this understanding of unity and multiplicity? Why is it important to understand people from the perspective of their parts? Well, here's my answer. If you really love someone, you love all of them. That means you love all of their parts. It's not just the parts of them that you like, the parts of them that you find gratifying or useful, the parts that float your boat in one way or another for one reason or another. You don't pick and choose like, ooh, this is an an appealing part of you. I like that part. I like it that that part compliments me and that it makes me feel good. I'll take that in. I'll take that in. I'll love that part. But the parts of you that carry grief or the parts of you that carry pain or loss, eh, no time for that. Now, you just keep that to yourself, right? That's not loving the other person. That is picking and choosing and embracing what's gratifying and rejecting what's not. That's not real love. And Audre Lorde in the, the book Sister Outsider, Essays and Speeches, wrote this, quote, I find I am constantly being encouraged to pluck out some one aspect of myself and present this as the meaningful whole, eclipsing or denying the other parts of self, end quote. What, What she's saying is that Yeah, people sometimes just want one part of us. They want that one gratifying part or a small set of parts, not the whole enchilada. They don't want all of us. And what we need desperately in this world is to love and be loved completely. And I think this is what our Lord means when he says to love with all your heart, with all your heart, with all of you, with all your being. It's not just about 
loving some part of the other person. It's not about just loving some part of you yourself, right? Because we are supposed to love ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself implies that we love ourselves. Relationship with ourselves, that implies we've got some kind of, it can't be a monolith then. It's got to have some kind of parts there, right? In order for us to love ourselves. And and within ourselves, we don't get to pick and choose if we're going to really love ourselves. We can't just keep parts of ourselves isolated, rejected, the inner lepers, the inner tax collectors, the inner prostitutes, the inner outcasts of society within our own systems. No, love all of us, right? So getting to that fifth dimension is so important so that we can begin to at least sense parts of other people and of course sense our own parts too. All right, the sixth dimension. What happens in the sixth dimension? Well, no longer are we just in the natural world in the sixth dimension. In the sixth dimension, we are now seeing the other as a beloved child of God. We're seeing the other through the eyes of faith as God sees him or her. We're seeing the other as fearfully and wonderfully made, bearing God's image and likeness, as intrinsically good, as ontologically good, as good in her essence. And this requires supernatural grace. This is not just natural vision anymore. Now we have moved from two-dimensional chess to three-dimensional chess. There is a whole new ball game when we move into that sixth dimension. We talked about in the last episode, episode 81, grieving is the price we pay for loving. We talked about the standard stage and phase models that have really dominated the area of grief for the last 50, 60 years. Now, we've got another option. I want to introduce you to the work of Derek Scott. Derek Scott is a registered social worker with 35 years of experience. He is a certified IFS therapist. He's got an online practice based out of Toronto, Canada. He is the founder of the Internal Family Systems Counseling Association, IFCSA, which is an organization dedicated to bringing awareness of the IFS model to counselors and therapists in Canada and internationally. He's also got this really interesting 16-week Stepping Stones course, which is fairly comprehensive. And I think this is a great option, especially for those of you that really want IFS level one training, but are not being lucky in those lotteries. I would strongly recommend that you check out Derek Scott's Stepping Stones course. You can check that out at ifsca.ca. He's got a number of publications in the area of grief and internal family systems. In fact, he is far and away standing in a place by himself when it comes to excellence in integrating grief studies and IFS. He's no stranger to grief in his own life. He speaks from experience. And I am relying heavily on his article that was on his website entitled Grief and IFS Mapping the Terrain. So let's talk about what happens to parts when we experience grief. And as I go through this, I'm like, like I said, I'm relying a lot on Derek Scott's stuff. If I bring in something of my own conceptions, I'll let you know that, but otherwise assume that it's coming from him. Okay. So uh, what happens to parts when we experience grief? And let's go back to what a definition of a part is. For those of you that might just be turning, tuning in, 
This is the IFS understanding of parts, and they are separate, independently operating personalities within us, each with its own prominent needs, its roles in our lives, its own emotions, its own body sensations, its guiding beliefs and assumptions, typical thoughts, intentions, desires, attitudes, impulses, its own interpersonal style, its own worldview. Each part also has an image of God and an understanding of self. So they're more than just one factor, more than just one emotion. Sometimes people think of these as maybe transient emotional states or something like that. And it's much more than that. It's a whole constellation of these qualities that endure over time even if the part is not in conscious awareness in the moment, because sometimes parts are not in conscious awareness. A lot of times parts are not in conscious awareness. You might think of parts like the characters inside of Riley in the Pixar movie Inside Out. You remember how that girl Riley had those five characters within her, like the red anger character? Well, the red anger character had a full personality. He was not just an angry mood. He had beliefs. He had assumptions. He had intentions. He had desires. He had thoughts. He had impulses. He had an interpersonal style that was identifiable, that were characteristically and uniquely his own. And that was true of all the other characters as well, including sadness and joy and all of them. So the the parts are what we focus on within IFS along with the self. Now, when there's grief, Derek Scott tells us that we're going to have manager parts who present with disbelief, numbness, depression, guilt, and I'm going to add another one called spiritual bypassing. That wasn't in his article, but I think it's important for us to discuss. And we'll go through all of these. But manager parts who present with disbelief, numbness, depression, guilt, and spiritual bypassing. We also have exiled parts who present with sadness, missing and yearning, protest, expressed often through anger, guilt, powerlessness, despair, or resignation, And then I'm also going to add to Derek Scott's list, shame, because I think shame is a big one in this. So let's talk about the exiles. We're going to start with the exiles first, right? Um, So exiles, what are they? Well, these are the most sensitive parts often in our system. These parts of us have been exploited, rejected, or abandoned in external relationships. They have suffered relational traumas or attachment injuries. They hold the painful experiences that have been isolated from conscious awareness in order to protect us from being overwhelmed with the intensity of those experiences, to protect us from being flooded with the intensity of their experiences. And they desperately want to be seen and known. They desperately want to be safe and secure. They want to be comforted. They want to be soothed. They want to be cared for. They want to be loved. They want rescue. They want redemption. And in the intensity of their needs and emotions, they threaten to take over and destabilize the person's whole being, the person's whole system, like those characters in Inside Out when they would take over the control panel, right? And they carry these burdens. They carry shame and dependency and worthlessness and fear and terror and loneliness and neediness. They carry pain. They carry the lack of meaning or purpose. They carry the sense of being unloved and unlovable, the sense of being inadequate, abandoned, and they carry grief. They carry grief. And it's important, Derek reminds us, it's really important to remember that when we talk about exiles, we're not assuming that 
this part is only sad or only guilty, but the part leads with that feeling or it leads with that experience. So remember, parts have these complete personalities. There are many dimensions to them, but sometimes there's one dimension or a couple of dimensions that are very prominent. And the part can be readily identified by that one or possibly two dimensions. So let's take a look at what our exiled parts carry when there's grief. And the first one on the list is the sadness. Parts carry sadness. And they're often the same parts that carry unresolved sadness that goes back decades for us into our childhoods, right? When our parents dismiss or minimize the experience of losing a pet or moving to a new house in a new neighborhood in a new town or changing schools or divorce or anything like that, when parents dismiss or minimize that stuff, then the distress can become exiled, carried by a part that is not allowed a place at the table within the person's conscious awareness, a place at the table within the person's system. And protectors can come to mimic the parental injunctions that the person experienced, the the ways that parents shut down the experience. We can take that inside and our, our protectors can imitate that in order to ignore the distress, ignore the agitation in the system, and to keep functioning. And the intensity of this sadness was captured for me in this really pithy quote by Andy Milonakis, who said, quote, I had sadness for breakfast. Right, Vivian has a part, it seemed to come out in her letter, that was sad, that was sad about the state of affairs, that experienced the sad part of grief in her relationship with Ron, the experience of not being seen, not being heard, not being known, not being understood. Ron, to give you a little more of the story, later in the day, he was crying, but not feeling anything. He was numb, but his body was crying, right? So his sadness in that moment was being expressed behaviorally, even though it was totally cut off from his conscious experience of emotion, right? Sometimes we can have those body reactions. We can have those disconnects within us, right? So sadness is the first example of what exiles can carry in grief, according to Derek Scott. Well, what's the second one that he lists? And the second one is missing or yearning. It is very common for us to have parts that are six years of age or younger. A lot of our parts can be very, very young. And when parts are phenomenologically of the age of six or under, they don't recognize the permanence of loss. Why can't I have what I want back, right? And so there there can be this desire for things to go back to the way they were, for me to be like I was before I experienced the loss. And I think that Virginia Woolf captured this in a quote in her book, To the Lighthouse, when she wrote, quote, to want and not to have sent all up her body a hardness, a hollowness, a strain, and then to want and not to have, to want and want, how that wrung the heart and wrung it again and again, end quote. There can be this feeling of emptiness, this feeling of incompleteness, a void within because of the loss, right? That generates the missing and the yearning. 
And Fernando Pessoa captured some of this, I think, in The Education of the Stoic, when he gives an example of what can happen when an exiled part floods the person with a sensation of a void inside, with that sensation of loss, that missing and yearning. He wrote, quote, At first I felt dizzy, not with the kind of dizziness that makes the body real, but the kind that's like a dead emptiness in the brain, an instinctive awareness of the void, end quote. So because exiles are so desperate to have their experience recognized, they're so desperate to be seen and known, to be healed, to be heard, to be recognized, to be redeemed, their, their one way of communicating, or at least the one way they think they have to communicate, is to take over the whole system. Well, that creates all kinds of agitation, all kinds of chaos inside, and it's rarely successful. But that's what happens when they feel like they have no other option. They jailbreak, they come out, they flood. Vivian expresses this missing and yearning, the yearning for companionship, you know, and because of that, and because she had protectors that wanted to convince her that that wasn't possible with Ron anymore, those protectors were trying to tell her that Ron wasn't capable of intimacy, that he was too damaged to be able to connect with her in a way that would fill her yearning. And she may also have been trying to use Ron as a replacement for other relational needs, needs that were unrealistic or perhaps even more than Ron could possibly do, needs for God, needs for a father figure, things like that. So it's just an idea as we play with this example. Right? So the first example of what exiles carrying grief from Derek Scott was sadness. The second one, missing and yearning. That brings us to the third one, protest and anger. Anger is reaction to a perceived injustice. This is not right, right? That's the protest, right? And that anger might be deemed unacceptable and be displaced to a safer person or to a situation, right? For example, if if there's real anger towards a loved one who has just died, that anger may be transferred from somebody that I need and fear towards somebody that is safer to be angry at, right? And we had an example of this. Do you remember in the beginning clip? Do you remember where anger got transferred into, or got transferred, got displaced onto somebody safer to be angry at? Yeah, right? Ron transferred his anger from being toward Vivian onto Quentin or Squinty, right? He transferred his anger, which was building up onto a safer object, The safer object of his anger was Quentin. He didn't care about Quentin, right? Where he cares deeply about his wife, or at least parts of him do. And so there's that transfer, right? You can see that. Derek Scott talks about how women may be more socialized into rejecting their anger in order to be good girls, not wanting to be seen as scolds or or shrews or bitches, right? They, They often have this good girl type of part that squelches the expression of anger. And that anger can be really powerful, right? As Cami Garcia and Margaret Stoll wrote, quote, the anger welled inside me with nowhere to go. I could feel it eating away at me. I knew if I didn't find a way to release it, it would destroy me. End quote. And the harm of of that anger coming out is well known to the protectors. They 
deal with the consequences with the cleanup when an angry exile takes over and floods the system. And that's expressed by Cassandra Clare in her book, Clockwork Angel, when she writes, begin quote, there was something peculiarly gratifying about shouting in a blind rage until your words ran out. Of course, the aftermath was less pleasant. Once you'd told everyone you hated them and not to come after you, where exactly did you go? End quote. All right, so those first three examples of what exiles carry in grief, sadness, missing and yearning, and protest. The fourth one, guilt. Guilt often goes back to childhood. Often the exiles that carry guilt go way, way back. Children's guilt can be huge in relation to the crime, right? And the example that Derek Scott gives is, I stole my brother's candy bar and blamed the dog. There, you could feel really, really guilty about something like that. And I have a, I have a vivid memory of being like five years old and I was playing outside and I had to go potty and I didn't want to go into the house to go potty. So I decided I would take the reckless action of peeing outside in the pine trees in the backyard. And I peed like that and it was great at the time, but after I had zipped up my little fly and buckled my belt, I felt guilty. I felt like I had done something I wasn't supposed to do. And I remember that guilt staying with me, right? So there's an example of how this guilt can stay with us, right? Didi Barrent, in his, in his work, Dying Bites, wrote this. Begin quote, I've got a bad case of the three o'clock a.m. guilts. You know, when you lie in bed awake and replay all those things you didn't do right? Because, as we know, nothing solves insomnia like a nice warm glass of regret, depression, and self-loathing, end quote. That's the fourth one, guilt, right? Sadness, missing and yearning, protest and anger, guilt. Those are the first four examples of what exiles carry in grief. According to Derek Scott, what's the fifth one? The fifth one is this powerlessness, despair, and resignation. This is when parts recognize that we are powerless to change the reality uh, that we're going to attach to other people and we're going to lose them. And that that loss is certain, it's inevitable, it's a heavy burden, other parts do not want to handle that. Other parts cannot bear that oftentimes. So there can be fantasies of omnipotence that are preserved as long as the parts that bear the powerlessness, the despair, the resignation are banished from conscious awareness. And along with that powerlessness comes despair and resignation. There can be this sense of helplessness in these parts that understand something about the limitations that we have in our fallen world. And Megan Crew, she grips onto this in her work, Give Up the Ghost, in this quote. She writes, I had the feeling deep in my gut that there'd been lines I should have spoken, gestures I should have made that would have made things better. But looking back, I didn't know what they were. As a friend, I was pretty much useless, apparently. End quote. And we had an example of that from Ron. Remember at the very end of his experience of reading that letter, parts broke through with a sense of helplessness. Let's go ahead and listen to that. We'll rewind the clip. She really is gone. She's really gone this time. Nick, the accountant. Father Pat. Squinty. <laughs> Squinty. Oh, man. She's gone. This is it. It's over. 
and there is not a single thing I can do about it. And so you can hear the depths of that helplessness. There's this exile that's broken through that's carrying the sense of helplessness that is now flooding Ron's system. He feels helpless. He feels this deep sense that he is powerless to change the reality of his wife seeking a divorce. This is overwhelming him at this point in the narrative. So those are the five, the five examples of what exiles carry in grief. The sadness, the missing and yearning, the protest and anger, the guilt, and the powerlessness, despair, and resignation. Those five. I'm going to add shame. Now, some of you longtime listeners know I did a whole 13-episode series on shame because I think it's so absolutely fundamental. Check out episodes 37 to 49 if you haven't looked at those. They're really valuable episodes. And in those episodes, we discuss how shame has got five dimensions to it. It's a primary emotion, it's a bodily reaction, it's a signal, it's a judgment, and it's an action. Right, So we're just going to focus on what it means for identity right now. And that's the deep sense of fundamental inadequacy, irreparable brokenness, unhealable woundedness, intrinsic badness, and this deep sense of unworthiness. Right, And it differs from guilt because guilt says to us, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. A lot of times especially when we're dealing with identity things, right? That the core of our being, shame gets activated. Exiles bearing shame get activated. And I think this lies at the deepest levels of the complications that can come up with bereavement or with grief. Those are the exiles. Those are the typical things that are carried by exiles in a grief reaction. But let's go ahead and let's talk about what goes on with managers, right? What happens with the managers? Now, remember, managers are the proactive protector parts. Those are the ones that work strategically. They work with forethought and planning to keep you in control of situations and relationships to minimize the likelihood of you being hurt. They work really hard to keep you safe. And we have disbelieving managers, numbing managers, depressed managers, guilt-carrying managers. Those are the four that Derek Scott talked about. But I'm also going to add, because it's particularly important for us faithful Catholics, spiritual bypassing managers, right? That's really common. So let's go through these. Well, what are disbelieving managers? What they say is things like, this can't have happened. This can't be happening. So many of us have had the experience of working on Uh, PCs, right, where the computer crashes and you get the blue screen of death. The blue screen of death goes all the way back to Windows 1.0 in 1985. It indicates a system crash where the operating system has reached such a critical condition that it can no longer operate. There's been a hardware failure or an unexpected termination of a critical process. And you know, remember that? Hours of hardware can be lost in an instant, just like that right? Then we can say things like, this can't be happening. How can this be? This can't be happening, right? So Derek Scott says, quote, disbelieving managers may take the lead as other parts of the system impacted by the loss are afforded time to adjust to the new reality. 
It is as if the sad, yearning, guilty, and protesting parts sit behind the protectors that allow the information to be gradually filtered to them, end quote. Right? So at first, you can have this disbelief. And we've got that example of Ron, right? Let's rewind the tape and play the clip where he is experiencing a disbelieving manager coming up as he reads the letter. Here we go. Let's roll it. Viv, you are not saying this to me. You are not doing this to me. You are not leaving me. This is not happening. We've been together for 28 years. We've made it through a lot of tough times, lots of tough times. We raised four kids. We made it through your cancer, your parents dying. This is not happening. You cannot leave me. You are not leaving me. You can see that in that clip, he didn't believe it for that period of time, right? And we have this colloquial phrase, as Derek Scott lets us know, that it hasn't hit him yet, right? The implications haven't sunk in. We're disbelieving. That's the first one, disbelieving managers. Second one, numbing managers. You know, what do they say? What do numbing managers say? Well, they don't say anything, really. They just don't let you feel anything in conscious awareness, right? This is a survival mechanism so that you can deal with the daily tasks. And these numbing managers can be in control for a long time, according to Derek Scott, right? But there's never a perfect barrier to keeping all of the intensity of emotion outside of conscious awareness. It gets pierced by what Therese Randall calls stugs. And stugs are sudden temporary upsurges of grief, right? These These stugs, these sudden upsurges of grief happen when the rejected exiles who bear grief break through the protective barriers that the protecting parts have put up and they flood with the intensity of their suffering. Numbing managers. And that can happen, for example, for Ron when he shuts down. And apparently from Vivian's letter, right? He has this capacity to shut down his emotions, to have a sense of apathy, to have a sense of emotional disconnect. May have been a way that he coped with with stuff at work, but that's really harmful as a coping mechanism in your personal relationship. So, so, you know, that, that disconnect can clearly be there in guilt for so many people. All right. So we've got disbelieving managers. We've got numbing managers. We've also got depressed managers. Now, remember that a reactive depressed mood is a normal part of grieving, right? And these depressed managers may be attempting to titrate the grief. In other words, they're kind of like fighting fire with fire. They're fighting the intense depression that an exile carries with a more manageable depression that the depressed manager carries. And so they're still holding at bay the exiles that bear the intensity of grief but they're allowing some grief to be experienced in the system. And that can actually be really adaptive because there can be the sort of process by which a finite amount of grief becomes processed and resolved. So we've got the disbelieving managers, the numbing managers, the depressed managers. The next one, according to Derek Scott, is the guilt-carrying managers. And these managers reflect on the bad things that they said or did in the relationship. The guilt-carrying manager has a voice that tells us that we should have done more. We should have been a better spouse. We should have been a better friend. We should have been a better parent. We should have been a better child, right? These are the parts that experience guilt, but they're also defending against the exiles with the huge guilt 
that go way back to the childhood. Remember that guilt-bearing parts were also exiles, right? This guilt covers both the exiles and the managers. It's in both camps, right? It's in both it's in both the exiles and the managers. So guilty parts that are managers argue that we didn't do enough, we weren't present enough in the relationship. But you know, they they don't have the complete picture because every part's vision is limited. It's partial, especially if it's disconnected from the self, especially if it's operating autonomously. It doesn't have the complete story. So it doesn't know all the other things that were going on in life that may, may have made it extremely difficult or impossible to do more than what was done. So those are the four managers that that Derek Scott gave us, right? The disbelieving managers, the numbing managers, the depressed managers, and the guilt-carrying managers who are all working with good intentions to address the issues around guilt. I'm going to add the spiritual bypassing managers. These are really common, as I said, in serious practicing Catholics. So let's review what spiritual bypassing is. And I like this quote from John Wellwood when he said, Begin quote, spiritual bypassing is a term I coined to describe a process I saw happening in the Buddhist community I was in and also in myself. Although most of us were sincerely trying to work on ourselves, I noticed a widespread tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. End quote. Essentially, it's about kicking something that's in the natural realm into the spiritual realm. It's about converting something that's going on in the natural life, the emotional life, the psychological life, and converting it into something that's going on in the spiritual life. All right, well, what does that look like in examples? You can see this at Catholic funerals, you know, in the funeral parlors where there's a death of a loved one and there's this external focus and there's all this talk about how Yep, Uncle Joe, he's in a better place. He's in heaven now. You see this all the time. You see these de facto canonizations at the eulogies and so forth, right? There's this spiritualizing as people are not addressing the grief they have about the death of Joe, but they're like sort of externalizing this, kind of getting it outside themselves, kind of giving these pat spiritual answers, these platitudes that don't actually address what they're experiencing inside. An example of spiritual bypassing for Vivian would be for her to say something like, well, God will take care of Ron now. There's nothing more I can do. We're just focused on the positive, the good times we had. And when I feel bad about how it all worked out, I'll just pray the sadness away. Right. That's, that's a way of not actually dealing with the grief and the loss about the divorce. And Ron... He might have a spiritual bypassing after a while that goes something like this. You know, when God closes a door, he opens a window. He likely has a better woman for me in the future, and he'll punish Vivian for what she's done. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. She'll get what she deserves from him. All right, so you can see that now these spiritual concepts are being used in a way that is not really addressing the intensity of the experience in Ron's parts. So those are the five ways that managers present when there is grief. The four of them from Derek Scott, disbelieving managers, numbing managers, depressed managers, and guilt-carrying managers. And then I added the spiritual bypassing managers. Well, what do these managers actually do? Like, what, what does it actually look like when they're being active? 
Well, there's a list of seven activities that are very commonly seen in managers who are dealing with grief reactions. And this are all straight this is straight from Derek Scott's article, Grief and IFS Mapping the Terrain. Really, it's the best 12 pages I've ever read on grief. This article, Grief and IFS Mapping the Terrain. You can get that at Derek Scott's website, uh, ifsca.ca. So what do these man- managers do? They postpone, they displace, they replace, they minimize, they avoid, they somaticize, and they shame. Those seven things. Well, what's postponing? According to Derek Scott, that is agreeing that there is grief work to be done, but we're going to do it later. Not right now. Not right now. When asked to be specific about when the grief work is going to be done, these postponing manager parts become evasive or they propose a future time that actually never happens. It's subsequently not actually used for doing any grief work. So it's the manana thing. It's going to be later, some other time in the future. We'll deal with the grief. Right now, I've got so many things I got to do. I got people I got to see, got places I got to be, postponing it to the future. Postponing. Second one, displacing. Now, this is where emotional responses connected to parts grieving the loss are displaced onto other targets. And we had this reaction, right, where Ron displaced his anger at Vivian onto Quentin, onto Squinty, right? We're going to rewind the tape. It's you and me now. You want to tamper with my wife, Squinty? You really want to take that on? Right, remember that? Okay. It's safer for Ron to be angry at Quentin than it is for him to be angry at Vivian. So he's displacing his anger at Vivian in this clip onto Quentin because, again, there's a lower risk of attachment loss. It's a way to discharge the anger. It's a way to express the anger, but it's seen as safer for those parts. And then... There are other times too, like there are other ways that this could happen, like really getting wrapped up in a movie and just being so sad about what's happening in the movie because grief is being expressed somehow through that channel rather than through the facts of what's happened in your life or anger about poor service in a restaurant. That's another example that Derek Scott gives us, right? Which serves as a lightning rod for anger that's not being effectively dealt with because of grief, right? So we have postponing and now we have displacing. Third thing is replacing. Replacing is reinvesting too quickly after a significant loss, right? So this can happen, for example, in this, this may be going on, for example, in Vivian, right? Wanting to replace Ron with Quentin, right? That might be going on there. I'm not, you know, again, it's a made up story, so we can, I suppose, have it be however we want, but, but that's possible in those ways. It can also happen when there is a rep- reproductive loss, you know, when there's a miscarriage, right? Get pregnant again right away. Let's not address, you know, what it meant to have lost a baby. It can also happen in the loss of an animal companion, a pet, right? You know, uh, Fido dies, replaced immediately with another dog named Fido, right? Without actually grieving the loss of the original, the original one. All right, so postponing, displacing, replacing. What's the next one? Minimizing. This is cognitively diluting the experience of parts with big feelings by framing the relationship as one that wasn't really that close. 
somehow devaluing the loss. Next one, avoiding. That might look like not going to the gravesite, not talking about the loss, removing the pictures, not going to places that will evoke the memories of the deceased and activate the exile parts. This is what Derek Scott's giving us. It's just excellent stuff. And somaticizing, that's bringing physical distress into the system. It could be migraines, gastrointestinal distress, sleep disturbances. Somehow the body is a carrying and expressing the psychological distress, carrying and expressing the emotional distress. Or the body could be having problems to distract us from emotional distress. It can cut a lot of different ways, but the body in some way is being used to somehow manage distress or express distress. This is really common when we're small, when we're little children. If grief is not validated, if it's not understood, if it's not, if it's not attuned to by adults, it can it can go into the body. It can go into the body of the little person. And then the last one, shaming. This is where shaming protectors reinforce that somehow the person is not worthy, is not entitled to grieve. And this can happen when there are Uh, When there's disenfranchised grief, that's the grief that doesn't have a social sanction. Okay, so there could be, uh, again, miscarriage is an example, which isn't always supported very well in our culture. It could be um, the, uh, the loss of a what's considered to be an illicit relationship, the loss of an affair partner, a mistress or something like that, where it can't be public, something like that. So to review, we've got these seven, postponing, displacing, replacing, minimizing, avoiding, somaticizing, and shaming. Those are all manager actions straight from Derek Scott's article, Grief and IFS, Mapping the Terrain. Well, let's talk about firefighters. So again, what are firefighters? That's the third type of part. We've got the exiles, we've got the managers, we've got the firefighters. Firefighters are protectors. So when the exiles are about to break out, firefighters leap into action. It's an emergency situation. It's a crisis. It's like a fire raging in a house. So there's no concern for niceties. There's no concern for propriety. There's no etiquette. There's no time for little details like that. Firefighters need to take bold, drastic actions to stifle, numb, or distract from the intensity of the exile's experience. Intense neediness and grief are overwhelming us. Emergency actions, battle stations, evasive maneuvers, arm the torpedoes, full speed ahead. No concern for consequences. We are in a crisis. So these, these firefighters leap into action when exiles threaten to flood the system with the intensity of their grief. They can lead to drinking, using drugs. They can rage. They can binge on television, videos, Netflix. It could be food binging, right? It's chocolate for me, right? If I have losses, if I have grief about relationships, chocolate. Chocolate becomes the thing for me. I remember when we brought my oldest daughter, Grace, to the Port Clare convent outside of St. Louis. We brought her to the door and we went through all the ceremonies where she was admitted into the community. And we really believed we were never going to see her again, like not except through the grill at the convent. And I remember driving home from St. Louis. We stopped to pick up some supplies and I bought the two biggest bags of chocolate I have ever bought. And we all ate chocolate on the way, you know, as a way of helping to assuage some of the grief we were experiencing about the loss of Gracie, in a sense, to the convent. 
So there's another example, personal example, how firefighter behavior can leap up, right, as a way to try to cope with grief. There can be binging around sex, around overworking. There, and when the grief has brought up identity issues, remember that the disruption caused by not knowing who I am because of this grief, because of the loss, right, that may open the door, Derek Scott tells us, to behaviors that have been previously prohibited by the managers. In other words, new firefighting behaviors. We're starting to do things we've never done before, right? We've entered into a whole new realm. We've entered into a whole new array of coping mechanisms. We have laid out some understanding about how parts can be reacting in various ways when there's a grief response. We're really working at getting to that fifth dimension, understanding people as a multiplicity and as a unity, understanding that different parts can be reacting in different ways. And we've laid out some of the possible cast of these parts within us, this cast of characters of our parts within us. But what we haven't gotten into is how these parts interact. And we're going to be getting into that in the next episode, in episode 83. We're going to get into more of how these parts interact, and we're also going to do an experiential exercise. I'm going to try something new in the next episode. So we're going to wrap up how these parts interact. I've brought you a lot of conceptual information, a lot of psychoeducation, all this intellectual material in the last episode and in this episode, and I'll finish that off in the next episode. And that's all great for nourishing our conceptual and analytical parts, for feeding our minds, if you will. But in the next episode, you're going to have the possibility to go deeper, not just in the abstract realm, not just in your conceptual zone, but to take it down deep inside you because we're going to do an exploratory experiential exercise all about your personal grief. We've all had losses. We've all had the experience of grief. We all have things to work through with grief. So we're going to pull all this information together and we're going to work on our own human formation and our own interior integration. It's going to be voluntary. We're going to be working with our parts to make sure that they that we have their buy-in, their consent. We're not going to steamroll any parts. So I'm going to invite you to that. We'll see how that goes. All right, so action items. I want you to subscribe to this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast on the platform of your choice. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and leave reviews and ratings. I would love to see some more reviews, some more ratings come up because people really do look at those when they're evaluating whether they should listen to a podcast or not. I also want you to give me feedback. I want to hear from you in our conversation hours. Those are every Tuesday and Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I am on my cell phone, 317-567-9594. That's my number. You can call me. Let me know what you like and what you don't like in this podcast. (laughs) <laughs> including uh, these, what you think about these dramatic interpretations like the one that we did in the lead in today's episode. I've got a part that just needs to know if that was cringy, right? A part of me, a part of me thinks that that whole lead in was cringy, right? And, but I've got other parts that say it's not about putting together great performances. It's about illustrating the points. So then other parts of me have questions, right? Did that illustrate the point? Was the example helpful? right? Let me know. 317-567-9594. That's my cell. Or you can email me at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. 
Also, let me know what you need and what you don't need in this podcast. I've had some feedback. It's come from multiple people. We need to hear something about perfectionism. We need to hear something about scrupulosity. Can you do anything on those topics? That's been actually a theme. I listen to what you tell me, but I can't read your mind. You've got to tell me. So let me know what you'd like some other episodes to be about, right? Catholic mental health professionals. Work with me in the interior therapist community at Souls and Hearts. Find out how you can join one of my therapist groups, which are starting in September. They are all about working on your human formation, informed by internal family systems and grounded in the Catholic faith. You can find all the details at soulsandhearts.com backslash ITC. That's the interior therapist community landing page. You can also email me with questions at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. Call me on my cell 317-567-9594 to find out how we can work together. And that goes for you grad students too. You know, if you're a graduate student in a mental health field, working your way towards licensure, give me a call. Let me know if you'd like to be involved with something like this. And finally, pray for me. Pray for our listeners. Pray that we be on this journey to human formation, that we be open, that we be receptive to the ways that we need to heal, the ways that we need to grow, the ways that we need to change, the ways that we need to integrate. What parts of us need love, need acceptance, need care? What parts of us are the lepers, the outcasts, the tax collectors, the sinners? How do we need to love them? What are we missing in our vision? How can we see in that fifth dimension, in that sixth dimension? What are we missing there? Pray that we see that, right? Now, that's not a substitute for doing the work in the natural realm. We don't want to do some spiritual bypassing here. We want to both do the work in the natural realm and in the spiritual realm. And with that, we'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist. Pray for us.